coming to you from the Woodland Baptist Ministry Center, home of the Woodland Baptist Church, on the 28th of January, 2024. What is the judgment of God? We are privileged to have a guest speaker this morning. His name is Justin Hornbaker. He's from Master's Bible Church. And if he would come forward and deliver the sermon, we'd be very grateful. Thank you very much for having me today, and hopefully you'll be able to hear me. I don't know how close this needs to get, but everybody hear me well? Yes. All right. Excellent. Well, I'm, I'm privileged to be here this morning. Um, I uh, serve at a church that's down in Vancouver, more on the east side. It's the one that Josh Risley goes to, so I know the Risley family a little bit. I'm blessed, blessed to uh, be here and to be able to serve you guys. As I know that you're going through a transitional period, and uh, that can always be difficult. But um, I'm here to, you know, it's it's great to hear other other men and preachers who um, who can share the word of God with you. That's something that me and my church does every year. We try to go to Shepherd's Conference and bring a bunch of our men so that we can hear other faithful preachers preach to us, those who are preachers as well. Um, or even just men that are serving in the church to help remind us that, that we too need to be living for Christ, in, not only in our personal lives, but um, in front of the rest of the world. So this morning, and by the way, I'd be happy to share more with you about my life if you, you want to come up and get to know me after the service, but uh, I am here this morning in the pulpit to preach the Word of God and so that's where our focus is going to be this morning. So if you would, please open with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. And I have been sitting in Romans a little bit more recently for our youth. Yeah, Romans is a, a wonderful book of the Bible written by Paul to a church that he hadn't even visited yet. And it's interesting to think that in the, in the first chapter of Romans, he says what he intends to do with the church that he's never visited is um, to preach the gospel to them. And you ask, well, if they're Christians already, why would we preach the gospel to them? Well, because the gospel is relevant to a Christian, not only when he's saved, but throughout his entire life. And I've also recently been doing, a, recently did a message on the righteousness of God from Psalm 50, and um, that goes very well with the book of Romans, because it says in Romans that um, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, that's verse 17 of chapter 1, as it is written, but the righteous shall live by faith. And then Paul goes on to talk about the unrighteousness of men in contrast to the righteousness of God. Well, Romans chapter 2 possesses a foundational doctrine for the understanding of the gospel. The Apostle Paul, who wrote Romans, makes it clear for us that the gospel is, once again, for Christians, not just for unbelievers, and is to be studied by Christians throughout their Christian life. And to truly understand the gospel, you must first understand the holiness of God, 
the righteousness of God, and even the judgment of God that results from all of those things. The holiness of God is the awesome intersection of all the triune God's attributes. But also, it is also the most fearful of his attributes. We understand holiness as God's separateness. His separateness or his otherness. And why is God separate from all creation? Why is he completely other than everything else in existence? Well, because, well, one simple way to answer that is because God's holiness is expressed in his perfect righteousness. It's expressed in his perfect righteousness. To better understand holiness, we must understand God's righteousness. God's righteousness is the practical outworking of his holiness. And God's righteousness could be defined this way. The natural disposition of his being not only to maintain himself against every violation of his holiness, but also to show in every respect that he is holy. And justice and righteousness go in hand, hand in hand. Often they're, they're used interchangeably. If you want to know if a ruler is righteous, for example, you will know if he's righteous and how he handles violations of the standards that he's obligated to enforce. An unrighteous ruler is, bri is bribed and allows violators to um, insuff be insufficiently punished or to go free without that law um, being imposed on that individual. And a righteous ruler, on the other hand, will hold firmly to the law and swiftly punish any violators of that law with precision. And, and, and using that precise punishment that each violation requires. God's holiness is expressed in his righteous standards and expectations. And there is no better place in the New, New Testament to study God's righteousness than Romans, once again. So, where the rubber hits the road regarding God's righteousness is the judgment of God. God's righteous standards are manifested in judgment where justice is perfectly executed. Think of the gavel coming down upon the desk in, in, a, in a room where uh, justice is established in a courthouse where you have the judge and you have the accused. And then in that room is where it is determined what is truth, what is error, what is right, and what is wrong, and who is going to get punished and who will get set free. Who is innocent and who is guilty. The courtroom gives us that perfect picture. And so judgment is extremely important to understand, especially when we understand eternal judgment, the final judgment, the final courtroom that everybody in this room is going to have to experience one day. I'm going to have to experience it, and every single one of you will have to experience it. We'll all be there, and we will all be part of this final judgment. So, without further ado, let's go to the text in Romans chapter 2. And if you have your Bibles open, start in verse 1. Therefore you are without excuse, O man, everyone who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who practice the same things. For, for you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you presume this, O man, 
who passes judgment on those who practice such things and does the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will repay each according to his works. To those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and anger. There will be affliction and turmoil for every soul of man who works out evil for the Jew first and also for the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who works good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when the Gentiles, who do not have the law, naturally do the things of the law, these, not having the law, are in law to themselves, in that they demonstrate the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience, bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. That is the word of the Lord. It's Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. And in this passage, there are three clear components of God's judgment that should move you to sober reflection of your spiritual state before our holy God. Three clear components of God's righteous judgment that should move you to sober reflection of your own heart and your own soul before a holy and righteous and just God, whom you will have to face one day. The outline is, verses 1 through 4, who is judged? Verses 1 through 4, who is judged? Verses 5 through 11, what is judged? What is judged? In verses 12 through 16, judged by what? Judged by what? Well, let's start with the first section. Who is judged? Therefore you are without excuse, O man, who passes judgment for that which you judge another. You condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. Who's Paul talking to here? Well, first... He's mentioning therefore. Whenever we see therefore, right, we look back and we see what came before. In Romans chapter 1, what Paul does is he begins to unpack the righteousness of God in the gospel. He says in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, both his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. In verse 21, for even though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, or give thanks because they were futile in their thoughts and their foolish heart was darkened, professing to become to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the likeness of corruptible man, 
corruptible man, and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And it goes on to show the degradation, the, the destruction of the individual, not living out the design that God has for them, but indulging in their wickedness and their sinfulness. And it even gives a, a full list of that indulging. When you indulge, God gives you over to your passive passion. And many of us can look at, at, at Romans chapter 1 and say, well, very, well, this is what happening, is happening in our culture. We see our culture breaking down. It's indulging in wickedness. And many of us here can, can say yes and amen to this, this unfortunate progression, or we could say regression of mankind back into his sinfulness, into like a sort of pagan digression. It, it really is even seen today in, in the world today as, as pagan religions are becoming more popular. First it goes to scientism and people figure out that they can't get the answers they're looking for from looking at Darwinian evolution and scientism. And so they... They work back over to look to, to gods and pagan spirituality, and we're seeing that flip back. And most of us here that go to church can, can sit there and look in Romans 1 and agree with Paul. Yes, yes, it, it is very wicked out there. Yes, the pagans do fall into sin as they indulge in all of their wickedness. But Paul here is not looking for someone to agree with him. He's not sitting here looking for people to join him in, in condemning the pagans. Because in chapter 2, he turns and he talks to another man in his argument. O man, he says. And who is this O man? Everyone who passes judgment. For in that with you, which you judge another, you condemn yourself. He's saying, those of you who have a religious standard, who perhaps know God's word, and can look on the pagan and see how wicked they are and how they are indulging in their wickedness. How are you doing living up to your own law? What about your heart? What about your affections? Do you, who judge another, practice the same things that you condemn another? Paul is ultimately speaking to that individual, that religious individual. And that religious individual could be a Christian, right? It, it could be uh, any one of us in this room. But it could be anyone who has some sort of religious uh, text. In, in, somebody in Islam, a Mormon, a Jehovah, Jehovah's Witnesses, any of those people, they have some sort of religion. And they look at the culture around them and they see that there is evil and there is wrong being done. And they say, that's horrible. I would never do those things. We should condemn those things. We should set those people in, in the right. But here's the problem. Those of us who have some sort of standard to go by, those of us who would like to look at the world around us, also need to look at our own hearts first. And, and, and this gets at, the, at something that's in the heart of uh, an issue in our culture today in the church. Uh, often, people will look at the culture around us and see, well, the culture's reverting into paganism. There's all sorts of wickedness happening, pride parades in the streets. 
more and more corruption happening in the government. People don't seem to have any problem with it. And we're, and we're easily, as those who are professing Christians or uh, can look at the, at the culture and get upset and not realize that one of the reasons the culture is getting out of control is because the church and the light from the church has stopped shining. We have stopped being a light to the world. We have stopped being light and salt that Christ calls his people to be. So just like Paul says here, before you start pointing your fingers to the world outside, make sure you're looking at your own heart first. And doing a deep dive on that as well. You see, the person who's judging this other person thinks that they might somehow be protected because they have some sort of religious text. They have some sort of religious right. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. We can say that when we have God's word sitting in front of us. But he says in verse 3, but do you presume this, O man, who passes judgment on those who practice such things and does the same? Will you escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? In Paul's day, Christian, Christianity was just getting started, and he was aiming at the Christians that he, he was writing to. Although, as he's narrowing the categories down here, he doesn't mention the Jew until verse 17. And surely, in the Roman church, the Jews were, would have fit that category best. The Jews would have fit that category best in Paul's day. And you see, the Jews, they had all these religious rights, right? If you read the Old Testament, you guys are doing the study on the Old Testament, you see that God pulled Abraham out of the nations. God, God guided Abraham and showed him a land that he would give his posterity and then gave him all of these promises that he was going to fulfill. So all of Abraham's descendants, Moses, and the, the giving of the law, and all of the Israelites, they had great religious rights. The problem was often that they didn't realize and they didn't look at their own hearts as they were passing judgment on the rest of the world, and even looking outside of them. And in Paul's day, it was especially bad. In Paul's day, it was especially bad. The Jews were often known for being extremely separatists uh, among the first century Gentiles. And, and they often asked for special, special um, privileges within society. Hey, look, we can't partake in that, so we've got to be separate from those guys. And some of it's understandable, because if you read the Old Testament, you know that God had specific requirements for the Jews. They couldn't eat certain things. They had to stay ceremonial, ceremonially clean. But they went far, far further than what God had required of them. 
And in fact, the Pharisees were themselves that had built all of these pharisaical laws around the law of God as to maybe not transgress the law of God. But what did Jesus say about that? He said, by your religious ideas, your religious laws that you've created, you've nullified the law of God. They've created, they created so many walls around the law of God, they ended up breaking the law of God themselves. And that's just the wicked heart of man. The Jews never escaped the fact that they were born of Adam, just like the Gentiles. They were born of Adam, just like the Gentiles. And I want you to look at something before we move from verses 1 through 5, or excuse me, 1 through 4, to, to the next section. He says, Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing the, kind, the, the kindness of God leads you to repentance? He's saying that you who are religious, who have a standard to judge others by, if you're taking for granted that God is being kind not only to the Gentiles who you're judging, but to you who are going to be breaking the very standard which you use to judge others, you are taking for granted God's patience, his kindness, and his forbearance. And the words here... Kindness is, is, in a sense, goodness or generosity. It's used elsewhere in Romans, Romans 11, 22. It means genuine goodness expressed in mercy toward an enemy with the desire that that enemy repent. We see that. That's how God treats his enemies. He gives them, he shows them mercy. It says in, in, in Romans chapter 5 that he demonstrated his love and his mercy by being patient and then sending his son. God's forbearance is mentioned here, or his clemency or tolerance, also mentioned in Romans 3.25. It's a holding back, a disciplined patience for the right moment. And then God's patience here is kind of a steadfast endurance. It's also mentioned, the same word, in Romans 9.22. And it's a state of being able to bear up under provocation. What's provocation? It's the inclination of being revoked. Or excuse me, provoke, excuse me, the inclination of being provoked. So in other words, God is the one who has the standard. And the moment he creates man, man rebels against his standard. And in that rebellion, God is provoked, in, in the very first rebellion, provoked to act because he's just. In fact, think of the garden and think of Adam and think of Eve. Most people will think of the moment he eats a fruit. Because the command was, you shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what exactly does she do? She listens to the serpent. She grabs the fruit. And she gives it to her husband. And they both eat. When was God provoked? Was he provoked when she finally ate the fruit? No. He was provoked the moment her thoughts shifted from trusting God to trusting herself and or the serpent. God was provoked in that moment, and a perfect and just God, and he would be right and perfect and just for doing this, for bearing down judgment and punishment on Adam and Eve immediately. He would have been perfectly just for doing that, and the entire human race would know it wouldn't exist. They'd go immediately to hell. But God had patience. He had forbearance. He had control over himself, 
And he saw the violation of his command, and he bore with them. It's taking advantage of that when we don't consider how horrible our violations against God are. And notice, those things that God shows us, those, those attributes of forbearance, the attribute of patience and kindness, are actually meant to lead us to repentance. Because when we think of a God who's willing to do that, that should cause us to turn away from our sin, confess, repent, and ask for forgiveness. The next section is 5 through 11. What is judged? What is judged? So who is judged in the first one? Clearly, God is encompassing all men. Paul's not looking for friends to agree with him. He's saying the Gentiles and the Jews, the unreligious people and the religious people, everyone is condemned under God. All are condemned. But here in Romans 5 through 11, he answers the question, what is judged? So what is God judging when he judges all men? When he judges all men? He says... But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will repay each according to his works. You know, Paul rarely uses the word repentance. He often prefers to use the concept rather than the word. One example would be 1 Thessalonians 1.9, how you turned to God from idols. That's the, that's the idea of repentance. It's turning away from your sin and turning towards God. There's a, it's, it's hand in hand with faith. You have repentance, the turning away, and you have the faith, the turning toward. But since he uses it so rarely, and we see it used again in, um, I believe it's 2 Corinthians 7, we need to pay attention when he uses the word repentance. Because he wants to get something across to us. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, he said then in verse 4, the kindness of God should lead you repentant. In verse 5, he's saying, if you are trying to stand on your religious rights, on the fact that you've got all of these wonderful, um, and really they are, wonderful privileges. You go to a church. You have a, 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 a Bible in your language. You've got a pastor. You've got somebody preaching to you every Sunday. You know what's right and wrong. You've got integrity when you go to work. Those are great religious privileges. But if that doesn't lead you to repentance, it doesn't lead you to contrition, then you are being stubborn and unrepentant, much like the hard-hearted, stiff-necked Israelites, often as they are described in the Old Testament. And you're storing up, and the idea here for storing up is a word used for storing up treasure most, most often, but here it's used for what God is storing up, for the wickedly arrogant, somebody who's arrogantly flagging their religious rights and saying somehow they're going to get judged differently than those who don't have the religious rights. God stores up wrath on behalf of those who are unwilling to acknowledge and turn from their sin. 
And that's what he's getting at here. He says, you're storing up wrath in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. We need to keep in mind that God is a God of anger, wrath, and vengeance. It says in Deuteronomy 32, starting in verse 35, vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time, their foot will stumble. For the day of their disaster is near, and the impending things are hastening upon them. See now that I, I am he, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. Indeed, I lift up my hand to heaven, and say, as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword, and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will render vengeance on my adversaries. God will repay those who hate him, who do not obey him, who do not consider his warnings and his judgments in this life. When Christ returns, remember, he's even pictured as a warrior with his robe dipped in blood. And he even, at the end of, of Revelation chapter 19, calls the, the birds to eat the flesh of his enemies who he destroys with a sword that's coming out of his mouth. We need to remember that Jesus is pictured that way, and that is what he's going to look like when he comes back. Don't fool yourself. There is a day of wrath. And Jesus warned that there will be many who will be surprised at the revelation of the coming righteous judgment of God. Consider Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, in your name, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons and in your name do many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Don't let this be you. Humbly acknowledge that you are indeed who Paul is speaking to here. Verse 6, Paul cites a phrase that's common in wisdom literature in the Old Testament. He said, who will repay each according to his work. Job 34 has the same phrase. It's when Elihu is speaking, the youngest of the group. He says, therefore, listen to me, you men with a heart of wisdom. Far be it from God to do injustice, and from the Almighty to do wrong. For he pays a man according to his work, and makes him find it according to his way. Truly, God will not act wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Who appointed him with authority over the earth? And who has laid on him the whole world? If he should set his heart on it, if he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would breathe its last together, and man would return to dust. What's he saying here? He's basically saying that if God wanted to, he could end all of us right now. And he would be perfectly, once again, perfectly just in doing them. And that brings up a concept that I want to deal with real quick that has, has reference to the righteousness and justice of God. And really, when we ask what is righteous and what is just, we're asking what is fair. What is fair? And most Christians, when I talk to them today, will, will say something like, fair, if I ask them, what is fairness? Well, fairness is if God extends a grace to one person, he's going to extend it to everybody, right? I mean, he's such a nice guy. He's, he's going to go out there. He's, if, he, if he's going to save somebody, he's going to give everybody an opportunity to get saved. Is that right? 
Is, is that how he's described in Scripture? What is fair? No. Fairness is that which God defines. Ezekiel 18, verses 4 and 20 say, The soul who sins shall die. And Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. And if all have sinned, and all have, he says that several times throughout our text here, and he says that in, in the next chapter, then fairness means that everyone without exception goes to hell. You want fairness? Fairness means that everyone gets what's coming to them. If you disobeyed God, if you're in Adam, you have sinned, Romans chapter 5, it says we all sinned in Adam, so that's before you're even born. And then you get born, and you start living this life, and you commit your own sin. And you add to that. You provoke God's judgment upon you. Fairness is, you get what's coming to you. That's what fairness is. Righteous retribution. You don't want fairness, you want grace. <laughs> and the idea, really, that I don't know how we've got it in our head, the idea that God, if he extends grace to one person, he's owed to extend it all, that's theological socialism. That's theological socialism. That's nowhere found in the Bible. God has no obligation to extend grace. And if there was any sort of obligation of God to extend grace, then it wouldn't be grace, and it wouldn't be mercy. Because he's obligated to do it. So when we think of this, this should sober you up. Because God doesn't have any obligation to extend you grace. And you should seriously and humbly and in contrition think about your state before a holy God. God judges according to works. 1 Corinthians 3, 11-15 says... For no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will indicate it because it is revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work, which he has built on, remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as though through fire. 2 Corinthians 5.10 adds, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. It's clear in these verses that he's described, God is described, as an impartial judge. It says in, verses, in verse 9, There will be affliction and turmoil for every soul of man who works out evil, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And he mentions that same phrase in verse 10, But glory and honor and peace to everyone who works good, to the Jew first and also for the Greek. Why is he mentioning both of those groups in there? Well, because of verse 11. There is no partiality with God. God is no respecter of men. He doesn't give you a pass if you've been in church your whole life. He doesn't give you a pass if you've never been to church and never read the Bible. God doesn't part and partial to a single man. And what many people get wrong is understanding that Paul is saying here, in regard to punishments and rewards given out in the judgment, they, they confuse judgment with salvation. 
They confuse judgment with salvation. Many imagine that there is another way of salvation being caused here. Well, well, if I'm just good enough, if I just do enough works, if maybe I just get a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance, is God a God of second chances? No. That's not what it's about. God is God, not a God of third chances or fourth chances. God is a God of grace. We don't want to confuse judgment with salvation. Because once again, all of us are born dead in Adam. All of us add our own sins. We're all part of the, the, the judged and the condemned. Jesus says in John 3.18 that everyone is already condemned. He makes it very clear. All of us really love to go to John 3 and talk about John 3, 16 and say, for God so loved the world. But Jesus slowly after that, very shortly after that says, well, what's your, what's your natural state? You're condemned. And there's something that has to be done before you can be plucked out of that situation. There's something that needs to take place because original sin condemns all of us. Hypothetically, even if you could remove Adam's sin and, and manage to stay sinless your whole life, you would simply be doing what God expects of you. Jesus says in Luke 17, 10, in this way, you also, when you do all these things which are commanded of you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done, only done that which we ought to have done. You need a righteousness that you can't attain, that no normal man can attain. And how do you get that righteousness? There's only one man that can give you that righteousness. His name is Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ came to this earth 2,000 years ago. The second person of the Godhead, the Word incarnate. And he became a man. Why did he become a man? Because as man that offended God. So there needed to be a man that made it right with God. And then Jesus, from the moment of birth to the moment of his death, did nothing but please the Father. The eternal worth of the Son and the fact that he obeyed the righteous commands of God perfectly. And when he went to be baptized by John the Baptist, he said, I'm, I'm baptizing because people need to repent, but you don't need to repent. And Jesus basically says, do it to fulfill all righteousness. What kind of righteousness was he fulfilling? He was God. He didn't need righteousness. He needed to gain a righteousness for his people. He needed to gain a righteousness for those who would believe in him by faith. And so that righteousness that we need and that debt that pays our sin and our guilt before a holy God can only be satisfied in the death and the life the perfect work, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the only way you can receive that is by turning from your sin and believing by faith that Jesus is the only way, the right way, and that he is the true God-man who can accomplish salvation for, uh, for un really hopeless men, men that are on their way to hell, an entire race of people who without the grace of God in Christ will suffer eternal wrath. And it's not just one death, because 
we, we think all of us have to face the fact that there will be physical death. But there is a second death. A second death. Where you're given a resurrected body and endure torture in that resurrected raw body in hell for eternity. That is a righteous punishment by God. But we shouldn't want even our worst enemies to go there. Which is why we need to preach this gift of salvation in Christ to everyone we come in contact with. The last section here in 12 through 16 is judged by what? Judged by what? We've seen who's judged? Every man. We've seen um, <clears throat> excuse me, we've seen <laughs> what God will judge. Men's works. Right? Uh, he, he looks at our character. He's going to judge us by our works. But in this last section, we're seeing the standard by which men will be judged. For all have sinned, all who have sinned without the law, keep in mind that's capital L, will also perish without the law, capital L, and all who have sinned under the law, this is the Mosaic law, will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Remember, the character matters. And matters to God. For when Gentiles who do not have the law naturally do things the things of the law, these, not having the law, are in law to themselves, and that they demonstrate the work of the law written on their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Notice in verse 14, if your translation is attempting to be as accurate as possible, it's going to have the last word for law there not capitalized. Why? Because it's not a reference to the Mosaic law. No, it's, it's not a reference to the law of God written in the Old Testament to Moses that you have in the first half of your Bible. Genesis through Deuteronomy. But rather, it's a reference to a moral law that's placed within the heart of every man. Because by the time Paul gets to this point in talking about the judgment of God, and then all men are judged, he's definitely put religious men... Under, under the scope of what he's trying to accomplish. But the pagans might then raise their hand and say, ha-ha, we don't have God's law, at least what it's written down. And so, well, we're ignorant of it, so don't we get free? We, don't we get a pass at the judgment? We didn't know. We didn't get to read it. Paul is saying, no, once again, not only externally do you know of God because of creation, but inside of your heart, God has written his moral standards. And you know what's right and wrong. You know that stealing is wrong. You know that murder is wrong. It doesn't have to be written down for you, although when, you, when it's written down for you, you become even more culpable. But rather, God has written his moral standard on every man. Every man knows it without even having read the Bible. And this is something that we need to keep in mind because Paul is saying that when every man have a conscience and every man have the law written on their heart, if you're going out talking to somebody and you want to share the gospel with them, you have an ally in the heart of every man. Is the conscience. And he talks about, the, the diff, he really mentions three different aspects here. He says, 
their thoughts, or excuse me, um, their hearts. So often these things are summarized within the heart, what, what the laws are written upon the heart. He mentions the conscience, and there's much written about in the New Testament and even the Old Testament about the conscience. And I would recommend a study on that. And then he mentions their thoughts alternately or accusing or else defending them. And, and the way to think about that is there is knowledge within the heart. The conscience is like, is like a mirror or a, or a window. It needs something to shine through it. And so God's moral law shines through it. And then your logical or rational self will then look at that standard that you know and then look at the actions that you have committed in your life and either what you have done in your life will align with what God has informed you about or it won't align and you'll be finding yourself guilty. That's when, you get, when your conscience accuses you. And this happens within you, regardless of whether you, you tell it to somebody else, regardless of whether you confess it to anyone. God knows when you violated your conscience, even if you never tell a human soul. And so you need to keep in mind that that, that ally that we would consider if we're going to go and evangelize and talk to someone else is also a witness against you on the day of judgment. That witness will stand either with you or against you, depending on whether or not your actions, your character align with what God has given you in your heart. And especially if you have your religious rights, you know the law of God, you've been in a church, you've been preached to. And before I get done here, what I want to do is I want to show you the importance of those religious rights. Because we look at religious rights, and now you might be, after going through these two sections, thinking, well, what, there's got to be a good or a privilege to these things that I have. I have access to the Bible. I go to a church. But if they're not going to help me, and they're not going to shield you from judgment, what do they do? Well, there's at least two things that we can, we can acknowledge that religious rights do. Number one, they will make you more culpable. So on the day of judgment, you will be judged more harshly than the pagan. Because you knew better. If you know better, make sure that, it, that you are being right with your conscience. Because it's easy to sear your conscience, to have all of this truth right in front of you, and not to obey it. But to say, ah, yes, I am a, I'm a good religious person. I go, to, I go to church every Sunday. But your life doesn't match what's in there. Don't let it become a witness against you. Don't let it become something that condemns you. But notice, it is an advantage as well. It is an advantage as well. And it's an advantage especially if you think of it the right way. You see, the Jew, one of the religious lights the Jew had, if you look further down in chapter 2, it says in verse 25, Indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man observes the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? He's pitting the man who doesn't have the Jewish religious right, but finds himself in obedience to God's law by faith, granted, because that's the only way anybody can be obedient to God's law. 
And why do I say that? Well, because sin causes our hearts to be pitted against God. And no matter how much outwardly you may act religious, unless your hearts and our affections are drawn to God by faith, anything not done in faith is sin, remember. If your motives are right, if you're not doing it for the right reasons, no matter what outward action you do, that is not counted as righteousness. So someone who is walking by faith, who doesn't have this religious right of circumcision, he's saying can bring down judgment upon the person who does have the religious right. So then how do we think of the religious rights accurately? Well, if you turn to chapter 4, it says, and the same thing about, the same topic, circumcision, helps us understand what religious rights are for. When we think of baptism, uh, we think of the Lord's Supper, all of these things. Verse 9 of chapter 4, Therefore, is this blessing on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say, faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while he was circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised that righteousness might be counted to them, and the father of circumcision to, to those who, are, who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. Religious rights are good when you believed by faith upon the gospel, and then those things that you're commanded to do for the Jew circumcision, for the Christian baptism, and other ordinances, become acts of faith, and those are a benefit to you, if you are doing them by faith. If there's, that's the condition. They must be done by faith, just like the faith of Abraham. I know I'm running out of time here. And so what I want to do is, I, in our closing, as we thought about these sober things about the judgment of God, the fact that God judges according to his law, and every man knows that law, the fact that every man is judged, and that no one escapes that judgment, and, and God judges us by our character, thank the Lord that he has provided a way of salvation in Christ who then pays the debt of our sin and cleanses our life and gives us the possibility of actually doing things that are good and right in God's eyes only if you're cleansed in the blood of Christ, only if you're empowered by the Holy Spirit, only if you're doing it in faith, then does any work that you do in this life merit any sort of reward? Because it must be done in Christ. God is a God who upholds his righteousness and is also shows his grace. And here's, here's how I want to end it is in an illustration that might help you see this more clearly. Consider this account of an ancient tribe that roamed in Russia, much like our Native American tribes. The Russian tribes that controlled the best hunting and choicest natural resources were those with the strongest and wisest leaders. One tribe controlled the very best of the territory because it had the most powerful and the wisest leader. And this tribe's leader 
was not only physically strong, but he had the wisest rule. Their success was due to the fairness, the equity, and the wisdom of the laws this great leader gave and enforced upon his people. His word was law, and among his greatest laws were that parents must be loved and honored. Two others were that murder was punishable by death, and stealing was to be severely punished. The tribe was prospering greatly when one day, disturbing reports began to circulate. It was discovered that someone in the tribe was stealing. This was reported to the great leader, and he sent out a proclamation that if the thief was caught, he would receive this severe punishment. Ten lashes from the tribal whipmaster. Ten lashes. The stealing continued, despite the warning. So the leader raised the punishment to ten, excuse me, 20 lashes. And as it continued, he then raised it to 30 and then to 40. At this point, the leader and everyone knew that the only person in the whole tribe who could survive that lashing was the leader because he was superior in strength to the rest of those in the tribe. Finally, the thief was caught. And to the horror of the whole tribe, this thief was the mother of the leader. This thief was the mother of the leader. What was this leader going to do? How, uh, how was he going to carry out his law? His law was that in everything, parents were to be loved and honored, but thieves were to be whipped. Great arguments arose on the day of the judgment as it approached. People wagered as to what the leader was going to do. Was he going to satisfy his love on the one hand and save his mother? Or was he going to satisfy his law and have her die under the whip? Because surely that many lashes would kill her. Finally, the judgment day came. The tribe was gathered around the great compound in the center of which there was a large post driven to the ground. The leader's great throne sat in the place of prominence, with great pomp and ceremony, the leader's center took his place on the throne, and at that moment there was a silent silence, a deafening throughout the whole crowd. Soon, his frail little mother was brought in between the towering warriors. They tied her to the post. The crowd murmured in debate, will he satisfy his love at the expense of the law, or his law at the expense of love? The tribal whipmaster Entered a powerful man with bulging muscles, a great leather whip in his hand as he approached the little lady. The warriors ripped off the backside of her shirt, exposing the frail little back to the cruelty of the whip. Everyone gasped. Was the leader really going to let her die? He sat staring without moving. Every eye was darting from him, from him to the whipmaster and back again. The whipmaster took his stance, his great arm cracked the whip in the air as he prepared to bring down the first blow on this tiny little woman. He sat staring without movement, and in everyone's heart was the question, would he allow his love to be violated or his law? And just as the whipmaster started to bring down his powerful arm forward with his first cutting stroke, the leader held up his hand, and he said, Halt to the punishment. A great sigh went up from the tribe. His love was going to be satisfied. 
What about his law? They watched as the leader rose from his throne. He strode, to strode towards his mother, and as he walked, he was removing his own shirt. He threw it down beside and proceeded to wrap his great arms around his little mother, exposing his back to the whipmaster. And then breaking the heavenly silence, he commanded, proceed with the punishment. Thus both his love and his law was satisfied. This is what God has done in Christ for those who believe on him for eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this moment. Thank you for helping us see our great need in salvation and the fact that all of us, we will be exposed, bear before your great judgment throne. And it is only in your Son, Jesus Christ, that we can find any freeing moment from such great punishment that we deserve. In Jesus' name, amen.